And please could the rest of us find uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And uh, verse 11. And if you wish to follow, there's a church Bible, should be church Bible knee, black cover church Bible, um, um, which is the same version, which is the SV that we're using. Um, or you could follow in your own Bible, of course. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 11, sorry, chapter 12, excuse me, and verse 11, page 1,152, page 1,152, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 11. And the Apostle Paul says, I have been a fool. You forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to those super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience or perseverance or endurance, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favoured than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden. For I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ. And all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come to you, when I come, I, might, I may find you not as I wish, as you wish. And perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Well, keep your Bible open there uh, because we're now going to pray and we're going to ask God for his help as we consider this passage. Oh Lord God, we thank you that you have spoken to us clearly by your word. You've inspired your word and you've caused it to be preserved so that we can learn from it. Please help me now to teach your word clearly and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And please cause each one of us to hear 
what you would want to say to us through your word. If there's any attitudes that need to change, if there's any sins that we need to repent of, please cause this to happen. If, if Lord, we need to be encouraged, please encourage us. But please speak to us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things which helps us to know that the Bible is true is that it faithfully records not only the triumphs of God's people, but also their failings. We learn about how Noah was a man of faith and he built the ark. And in that ark, him and his wife and his children and their wives were saved. We also learn how later on Noah got drunk. We learn about David, the great king who, who killed Goliath and who conquered a great empire. We also learn how later in his life he committed adultery and had the husband of the man with whom he committed adultery killed unlawfully. We learn about Solomon who, has, who had the proverbial wisdom of Solomon. He knew, he knew everything and knew all sorts of... He was so wise and so learned. He built the temple for God. And yet later in his life, he became a fool and worshipped idols. Well, here in this passage, we have recorded for us the failings of the church in Corinth. The failings of this church as regards the attitude of many of the members of that church towards the Apostle Paul, who had been instrumental in the founding of that church. What had happened was that some false apostles had come into the church, they claimed to have a new gospel different from the gospel that Paul had preached. They claimed to be the real apostles and said that Paul was not an apostle. And so Paul was forced to defend himself. And he'd done this not because he, his pride was offended, but because he knew that if these believers in Corinth were, went along with what these false apostles were teaching. They would land up with a false view of the gospel and their Christian lives would be ruined. And so he's had to defend himself. And he has had also to do something which he hated to do. He actually had to boast. Why? Because these false teachers were boasting. So Paul had to boast, but he boasted in a different way. He didn't boast about his strengths and successes in the way that they did. He boasted about his weakness and about how God used him in his weakness. But now in this passage, having defended himself, Paul is now having to point out to the believers in Corinth that they had done wrong. They had wronged Paul. Because they had failed to stand up for Paul. They had failed to resist these false teachers. They'd failed to see through them. They believed the lies that these people had peddled. And they treated Paul in a very wrong and very unfair way. They started to accuse Paul of wanting to take advantage of them and trying to trick them. And so Paul here in this passage, I'm sure with a great deal of reluctance and I'm sure with a heavy heart, Paul had to confront the believers in Corinth. 
about the ways in which they had wronged him. Now, the sins that are recorded in the Bible are recorded so that we can learn from the mistakes that people have made. The good things people do are recorded so we can follow their good example. The sins that they commit are recorded so that we can learn from their bad example that we don't do the bad things that they've done. So today, that's what we're going to be doing today. We're going to be looking at the mistakes that the believers in Corinth made in in terms of their relationship with Paul. And we're going to seek to uh, learn what we should not do. So that as we learn what we should not do, we can then positively see what we should do. And particularly this is in terms of the way in which we relate with those who are placed over us by God as pastors. Now, of course, I know I'm in a difficult position when I do this because I am I'm your pastor. But try to forget it's me and just try to think, well, what does the Bible say? And, of course, as I've been preparing, I've been thinking, well, I need to apply this to myself in terms of the way I relate with Ed and the way in which I relate with other pastors as well. So it's a challenge to me as well. So uh, let us... Um, seek to together uh, understand what God's word is saying. Now the first thing to see to see is this that the believers in Corinth did not stand up for Paul when they should have stood up for him. We read in verses eleven and twelve I have been a fool you have forced me to it for I ought to have been commended by you for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles even though I am nothing the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience with signs and wonders and mighty Works. Now, Paul is saying to the believers in Corinth that they sh- they should that that he should have been commended by them to the false teachers. They should have stood up for him. They should have said, "No, no, no! What you're saying about Paul is wrong. Where you're trying to encourage us to." to move away from Paul and, and to forget him. No, you're wrong to say that because Paul has been shown to be by God to be a true apostle. But they didn't do that. When Paul came under attack, they didn't stand up for him. They went along with the, uh, the, the attacks that were being made against Paul. And they indeed joined in with those attacks. Now there are two big reasons that Paul gives why they should have known that these attacks on Paul were wrong. First of all, because Paul proved that he was a true apostle by doing signs and wonders. He says, verse 12, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Now this phrase, signs and wonders, is a very important phrase that we need to understand its biblical meaning and sense. It is used to describe those very extraordinary miracles which God has done at a time when he has been revealing his word. The main time in the Old Testament when when this phrase is used 
is to describe the mighty miracles which God brought upon the people of Egypt through Moses where God sent the various plagues and disasters upon the people of Egypt so that they drove out the people of Israel from Egypt and then also it's to describe the mighty way in which God brought the people of Egypt through the Red Sea and destroyed the Egyptian army and then once they were in the desert God provided for them supernaturally with food and with water and he spoke to them from Mount Sinai. So this is described, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 22. It says, The Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And also Deuteronomy chapter 26 verse 8 we read that Moses said the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great deeds of terror with signs and wonders now when we come to the New Testament we see that Peter says as recorded in Acts chapter 2 verse 22 that Jesus did great signs and wonders during his earthly ministry. He says, uh, Acts 2 verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. And we know from the Gospels what those mighty signs and wonders were. Jesus enabled the blind to see. He caused the deaf to hear. He caused the lame to walk. He drove out demons. He caused the sea to be stilled. He created bread for people to eat. He raised the dead. And so these mighty signs and wonders were done and they showed that Jesus really is the eternal son of God and the book of Acts also tells us that the apostles also and their close associates were enabled to do great signs and wonders so Acts chapter 2 and verse 43 and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and also in Acts chapter 5 and verse 12 now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles and Stephen also who had his hands laid on by the the apostles he also Acts 6 verse 8 says uh, he was uh, full of grace and power doing great wonders and signs among the people and so we see that what happened was that the apostles were enabled by God to do the same mighty miracles that Jesus did they caused the lame to walk they caused the blind to see they caused the dead to be raised And so we see that the term signs and wonders is used to describe these very special and amazing miracles that God does, God did at the time when new scripture was being revealed in order to authenticate his servants. And so Hebrews chapter 2 verses 3 and 4 says that the gospel was declared at first by the Lord and was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So the signs and wonders are the very extraordinary and amazing miracles that God did as the gospel was revealed in order to authenticate Christ and in order to authenticate his 
apostles and those through whom this gospel was revealed. So when Paul here says that he also did signs and wonders there in Corinth, he's saying that God has proven him to be a genuine apostle. And he should therefore have been recognized by the church as, as such. But also the other thing which showed that Paul was genuine was not just his miracles, the miracles he did, but also his endurance. Verse 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, or the word could be, could be translated endurance. Paul was not just a flash-in-the-pan preacher. He was somebody who endured, who kept on going, who kept on doing the right thing, who kept on with his ministry. Well, how can we apply this to ourselves? Well, first of all, we need to be careful that that we also are not led astray just as the as the Corinthians were by false apostles there are people today who say oh we're doing signs and wonders we're doing miracles and we need to ask you you need to ask yourself and I need to ask myself are these claimed miracles that people do today are they anything like the signs and wonders that Jesus did and that Paul did and that Peter did? The answer is no. And so we need to be careful not to be led astray, just as these Corinthian Christians were led astray, not to be led astray by those who claim today to do signs and wonders. Also, we need to be careful uh, to hold on to the doctrine of the apostles. The believers in Corinth were being induced by these false apostles, these so-called super apostles, to turn away from the gospel that was revealed through the New Testament apostles. And we need to be careful not to do the same. We need to cling on to the truth as it has been revealed through Christ's apostles. But thirdly also, uh, we can learn from this that we should stand up for true servants of God today. It sometimes happens that a man who is eminently godly and gifted as a pastor is hounded out of a church for no good reason. A famous case of this happened uh, 200 years ago, nearly 200 years ago. There's a, a man called Jonathan Edwards who was a pastor of a church in Northampton, Massachusetts, in what is now the United States. It was then New England, a colony of, 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 of this country at that time. And Edwards was greatly used by God in revival and lived a very godly life. But there was a disgruntled member of the congregation who took offense with Jonathan Edwards because Jonathan Edwards suggested to this man that he was not converted, that he was not at that time born again. And this man was so angry and so incensed that he got up a, a campaign against Jonathan Edwards and the members of the church, sadly, to their shame, rather than standing up for their pastor, went along with this campaign. And there was a vote. And Jonathan Edwards was voted out as the pastor of the church. He must have been one of the finest pastors ever been. But he was voted out. Now, actually, what happened was that the man later repented of his sin. And uh, he publicly stated that, in fact, he'd been wrong to masterminded this campaign against Jonathan Edwards. And in fact, indeed, he had not been converted at that time. And he, he subsequently was converted and he felt deeply ashamed of what he'd done. But it 
was too late to reinstate Jonathan Edwards. He'd now moved on and then subsequently he died. And so we need to be careful and we need to uh, not just stand up for the apostles and the apostolic teaching, but also we need to, to stand up for those who are in their line, who stick to biblical doctrine and who faithfully work for Christ when they, if they come under false attack. Now, secondly, we see in this passage that the believers in Corinth wrongly imagined that Paul did not love them. We read in verses 13 to 15, For in what were you less favoured than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. For the third time ready, I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? What's happening, what Paul is talking about here, is that the believers in Corinth followed a very twisted and strange logic. They thought that because Paul did not take money from them, whereas he had received money from other churches to support him, they thought that because Paul didn't take money from them, somehow he loved them less than other churches. But the reality was the exact opposite. It was precisely because he did love them And because he did not want to put any stumbling block in the way of them receiving the gospel from him, he he determined that when he was with them in Corinth, he would not receive money from them. He, He would receive money from other churches to support him while he was working there, but he would not receive money from the church in Corinth because he loved them. He didn't want to be accused of exploiting them. And he wants to be like the parent who, who saves up, as he says there, just like a parent who wants to save up for his children. So he wanted to, to give to them out of his love and out of his generosity. But this was turned on its head by, the, by some people in Corinth. And they said, ah, there you are, you see. He doesn't really love us. He won't take from us. So... Because he won't take from us. He doesn't love us. Now Paul had explained in, in his first letter in, in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. He explained in quite some detail about how he, he had the right as an apostle to be provided for by the gospel. And he explained in verse 12 of that chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. He says, but we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Because he loved these believers in Corinth, and because he loved those who weren't yet believers, he preferred to go through the hardship of providing for his own needs, working for his own living, rather than to take from them. But then they twisted it. And turned it on its head and said, oh, there you are. That shows he doesn't love us. Let me just illustrate this. Sometimes uh, I've seen this and maybe you've seen it yourself. Sometimes I have seen parents who have done everything for their children. They've loved their children. They have almost sort of worshipped the ground their, the, feet, the, the, the feet of their children walk on. They've, they have provided uh, beautiful homes for their children. They've provided lots of food for them. Some parents have actually gone to huge sacrifices to provide a private education for their children. They've taken them away on expensive holidays. And then when the children get to university age, the, the parents have, 
have beggared themselves and have taken out a mortgage in order to finance their children as they go through university so the children come out of the university debt free. But how have the children treated the parents who've done this? In some, it's not every course at all, but sometimes I've observed that the more the parents do for the children, the more the children treat the parents with contempt. And they say, ah, oh, is that all you've done? Ah, oh, you're useless parents. And they criticize the very parents who've, who've beggared themselves for their children. And this perhaps is just a, a sort of illustration of what's going on here. Eventually, those, those, those children say, oh, I don't want anything to do with them. I can't stand my parents. They're rubbish. And they, and they, they, they just disown their parents who've, who've made such huge sacrifices for them. And that is the sort of thing that was going on here in Corinth. That they really showed contempt and, 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 and lack of, quite frankly, lack of gratitude to Paul for the huge sacrifices that he had made in order to get the gospel to them. Now, the, 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 the Bible says that we should love and respect those who labor in the gospel. And we should be grateful for the sacrifices that they have made in order to feed the people of God spiritually. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and verses 12 and 13, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and, uh, and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Well, the believers in Corinth had signally failed to do this as regards Paul. And we must be very careful that we don't fall into the same error as regards those whom God has given to us. Now, thirdly, they entertained evil suspicions against Paul. If we look now at verses 16 to 18, he says, But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say. And got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and I sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Somehow or other, the believers in Corinth had got into their minds that the reason why Paul did not accept financial help from the church in Corinth was somehow so he wanted, because he wanted to trick them. He wanted to somehow deceive them. He wanted to give the impression that he wasn't greedy when he was greedy so that he could somehow take advantage of them and get even more money than he would otherwise have had. It's all very, very twisted logic. But that's the sort of strange way that they were thinking. Somebody had put forward this sort of suggestion. Oh, you know what, Paul? You know why Paul's doing that, don't you? You know why he doesn't want your money out of you? Ah, he's trying to trick you. He's trying to deceive you. He's trying to take advantage of you. And instead of them saying, well, where's the evidence for that? What proof have you got? I'm not going to listen to this nonsense unless you can establish it. Instead of them saying that to them, they said, oh, oh, is he? Oh, I wonder if that, oh, yeah. And then before the suggestion, before long, becomes, it's almost as if it's established as fact. When there was no basis for it whatsoever. So Paul had to point out to them how ridiculous their suspicion was. He'd not taken advantage of the believers in any way. When he'd sent Titus to them, it wasn't to take advantage of them, but it was in order to inquire after their welfare. Because he loved them so much and he was, because he was so concerned for them. 
And if he asked for any money to be given to Titus or to anybody else, it wasn't for him at all. It was for the believers in Jerusalem because he was so concerned for them and he wanted to raise a collection for the poor uh, believers in Jerusalem. Now this um, raises a question as to what we should do when an accusation is brought against a pastor in a church, or indeed any member of the church for that matter. And we have to say, don't we, that sometimes churches can fail to properly investigate accusations or allegations that are made. And I'm sure we're all aware of scandals that have been when uh, a young person has complained that a pastor has, 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 has abused him and this person has not been listened to and then somebody else has come forward and made the same complaint. That person has not been listened to. That person, another person has come forward and made a complaint. And this person has remained in office and has been wrongly trusted and then eventually it all blows up because there's some report in the press and well, the, person, the, the pastor is arrested and put in prison and there's a great scandal. But there were warning signs a long time before and nobody had investigated. Why? Because they said, oh, we mustn't touch the Lord's anointed. We mustn't, you mustn't criticize. He's our pastor. So churches can be too trusting. And sometimes there is the need to investigate. If there's a properly made allegation uh, which, which it needs to be investigated carefully to see if it has foundation. And if it does have foundation, proper action must be taken. But sometimes it's the other way around. Sometimes a man who has been absolutely above reproach, faultless in his ministry, can become the subject of a whispering campaign by people who have no evidence at all and they can make that person's life impossible, whereby he is unable to continue in his ministry. So how can we get it right? Well, um, Paul actually gives us the answer in 1, Corinthians, 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 19. And uh, if, you want, if you want to see this for yourself, it's, um, it's, uh, it's, it's, I'll give you the page number. It's... Um, page 1179 and he says do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses as for those who persist in sin rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear and when it's talking about those who persist in sin there I think it must be talking about elders so an accusation against an elder should not be entertained, should not be listened to, unless there are two or three witnesses who independently come forward and say, he did this, and I can name the time, and I can say, that this is what happened. I saw it. But if there are those witnesses, then the person should be publicly rebuked, maybe dismissed from office for a while, or suspended for a while, until there is a clear sign of repentance but unless there is that clear evidence the elder should be protected from false accusation and slander and uh, uh, clearly that did not happen in Corinth and uh, Clearly, in that case that I mentioned in, in Northampton, Massachusetts, 200 years ago with Jonathan Edwards, it doesn't happen then. And so we need to uh, be careful to apply biblical principles to our church life. But there's a wider application here as well. It's very easy, and the devil tries to do it with all of us, to entertain false or evil suspicions of others. 
I've seen this happen lots of times, and <coughs> I must confess, I've been times when I've been guilty of it myself, and I have to repent. It's very easy, isn't it? You, you see something happen, and you put a negative construction on that. You assume that somebody meant something harmful by it. And before you know where you are, you're attributing motives to somebody which are not fair. And then you're thinking, oh, well, most likely he's done this as well. Oh, and most likely he's done that. And, most, and before you know where you are, you've, you've built a monster in your own head. But it's something which you fabricated. It's not based upon reality. Now, I've seen this. people do this. They, they build a whole picture. And then they talk with their friends and they reinforce each other with their friends this and and this this thing this person gets worse and worse and worse in their minds even though in fact there's no evidence at all for what has been what is being said we need to be careful not to entertain evil suspicions we should always believe the best about people until we are forced by irrefutable evidence to believe something different. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, just a bit on from that last cross reference I gave you, Paul says in verses 3 to 5, <coughs> if anyone teaches doctrine, a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy dissension evil suspicions there it is evil suspicions that's a sinful attitude we need to be very careful that we do not entertain about others so uh And now let's go on to the fourth thing that the church did wrong. The church put itself at risk of serious moral failure by rejecting the pastor that God had given them. Let's read now in verses 19 to 21. Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ. and all for your upbuilding beloved for i fear that perhaps when i come i may find you not as i wish but you may be and that you may find me not as you wish that perhaps there may be quarreling <coughs> jealousy anger hostility slander gossip conceit and, and disorder i fear that when i come again my god may humble me before you and i may have to mourn over many of those who have who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity sexual immorality and sensuality that they have practiced <coughs> now when paul wrote his first letter to the corinthians he had to address all sorts of problems that had come into the church divisions pride wrong boasting gross sexual immorality <coughs> false ideas about marriage uh wrong a wrong a uh, lack of love in the church a wrong view about spiritual gifts and false views about the future resurrection now that's just to name some of the things off the top of my head <coughs> and in the goodness of god paul wrote his first letter first corinthians and it does seem from what we pick up in the second letter that the church listened to the admonitions and the rebukes that paul gave in that first letter a lot of problems got sorted out there was repentance there was sorrow for sin and things were dealt with but what is concerned about is that now 
the church having been sorted out through his first letter, if the church then now rejects Paul as their apostle and as their pastor, and it goes off its own sweet way, it's going to go back to the very sins that engulfed the church before. Now, there's an important lesson here. Listening to the right teachers and having the right doctrine, it's not just a sort of a nice-to-have. It's not just something which, oh, you know, it's for, for the curious or for the, for the people who are interested in that sort of thing. Um, not just a matter of personal preference. You know, sometimes people say to me, Christians say to me, oh, well, you know, I'm not really that into doctrine. I'm not into things like the Trinity or penal substitution or evidence for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. I'm just a simple Christian. I'm just a practical Christian. I just get on with living the Christian life. Now, that sounds very good. But the problem is, (coughs) you can't live the Christian life without proper doctrine. If you don't understand the doctrine, if you don't understand the teaching of Scripture, your whole life is going to be up the creek. Because the power of Christianity is in the gospel. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And that's not just to save you from the guilt of your sins, it's also to save you from the power of your sins. And once you lose sight of the gospel, you lose the power of God to live as God wants you to live. And your life very quickly will degenerate into moral disaster. I'm afraid I've lived long enough to see it in people who have once professed to be Christians to make a shipwreck of their lives both doctrinally and morally having wandered from the truth. And so we see that it's very important not only that we hold to the truth of scripture which we must that we hold to apostolic doctrine but also that we cleave to pastors who also hold to that doctrine. Because God has given to us shepherds who one of the things they do is to guard the sheep from error. They are described as watchmen. They're on the lookout. And one thing that pastors have to do is to be aware of false teaching that's coming in, that's, that's, that's out there, and then they need to warn people, look, watch out, there's this false doctrine that's coming there. Well, there's that, and they, uh, uh, that, that's one thing that they do. But if you, if, you abs- if you either get rid of a faithful pastor or you absent yourself from a church, from your church where uh, there is faithful and biblical preaching then you are liable to come to spiritual ruin. Do you remember Jesus quoted uh, from the Old Testament? Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And you see this again and again. Shepherd is removed from the congregation, the sheep scatter. So we need to be very careful and we need to uh, uh, value those whom God has placed over us. We need to pray for them, that they will teach well and we need to heed what they say. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13 verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as men who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Okay, so let's then just summarize 
uh, what we've seen this morning. We've seen four things, four mistakes that the believers in Corinth made. Number one, they did not stand up for Paul when they should have done. Number two, they believed that Paul did not love them when in fact he did love them a great deal. Number three, they entertained evil suspicions against Paul that had no basis in reality. Number four, they put themselves in grave moral danger by rejecting the pastor whom God had given to them. How can we apply this to ourselves? Well, we need to hold on to apostolic teaching. We need to know our Bibles. We need to not be overly impressed by spectacular claims of modern so-called apostles. We should be grateful for our pastors and support them and pray for them. We should not believe rumours that circulate that have no foundation. We should check out what is alleged and if it is found to be true, we should act upon it. But if it is not found to be true, we should dismiss it. And finally, we should not put negative constructions on things. We should, do our be- we should believe the best about people, whether pastors or otherwise, unless forced by irrefutable proof to believe something different. Well, may God write his words upon our hearts and help us to apply his word in our own congregational life and wider as well. Well, we're going to sing our final hymn now, which is number 567 in the blue book, Christ is Made the Sure Foundation, 567.